verses 24 through 28. I'll begin there and then we'll move to the passage in Matthew's Gospel. So beginning with Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have no, have had no, to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And now from Matthew's Gospel beginning in verse 21 of the 16th chapter. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it a man to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, in this season of Advent, as we contemplate the first coming of our Lord and Savior, we give thanks that uh, his efficacious work on our behalf brought about an atonement, a covering, a blood covering for us that purges the sins in our lives and makes us holy vessels fit for your use. And so, Father, we give thanks for that. And as we consider how Christ did that in sacrificing himself for us, giving his all for us, his bride, we pray that that would be an example to us, that we would be compelled by his love for your kingdom and its advancement, that we would follow in his footsteps, desiring those very things as well the advancement of your kingdom. And we ask this in Christ's name for his sake and the advancement of his kingdom. Amen. Well, brethren, today I'm returning to the subjects of atonement and sacrifice, primarily sacrifice in the person of Jesus in his first advent. Uh, again, this is a, uh, a an interlude of sorts, uh, taking a respite from uh, 2 Samuel as we were have been looking at the life of David. Uh, 
that today and next week I'll be preaching uh, from one of the uh, gospel accounts of the advent of Christ and then uh, following that we'll return to uh, the uh, book of 2 Samuel. Last week we considered the word atonement and its meaning to cover over with blood when we are referring to our salvation and the importance of that word. You, You might recall that I brought to light the the fact that that's the same word that is used in in uh, the book of Genesis when Noah and his sons are building the ark. They covered it over. They atoned uh, the ark with uh, pitch so that it would be waterproof when the rains and the floods came. So that covering over uh, is a is a, a word that's used throughout the Old Testament, but uh, its most prolific uses are found in the book of uh, uh, Leviticus as it talks about the sacrificial blood of the, of the clean animals made on behalf of men in the Old Covenant pointing to Christ who would be uh, the, the lamb without spot or blemish that takes away the sin of the world. Well, today we'll consider the ramifications of that substitutionary atonement. When I use the word substitute or substitutionary, I'm referring to Christ taking the wrath of God for us in his death on the cross, in his suffering that led up to the cross, in God himself uh, turning away from his son at the time of his death, turning away uh, from him, not because he didn't love him, but because he couldn't look upon the sin that Christ had become for us. He became sin for us, Paul wrote, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He became Sin itself. He didn't commit sins. He became the very sins for which God's wrath had to punish and and bring about punishment on those very sins. He he became those for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's the substitutionary portion of the atonement. Well, in the midst of that taking on the wrath, His blood was spilt. Just as in the Old Covenant when the lambs were held by uh, the men who brought them to be sacrificed for, for them and their families, by the way, they would hold that lamb. The, 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 the lamb would be slain, its throat cut. The blood would spatter everywhere on the person holding them, on the priest. Some of that blood would then be taken into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat of God, the place where God it, it dwelt, where he came to be with his people. But to to get into the presence of the living God, that atonement, that covering of blood had to be be sprinkled on the mercy seat. And Christ has gone, as we've read already from the book of Hebrews, has gone into the Holy of Holies in heaven with His own blood to sprinkle it at the mercy seat that you and I won't have to endure the wrath of God for our sins. It's been done. It's a finished work. Now, There's consequences to that, is there not? I hope that, I hope it wells up in you the joy that God has purchased your redemption at such a high cost, but nevertheless purchased it and fulfilled it in your, in His Son Jesus Christ on your behalf. What does that do for us then? Does that motivate us? I think it should. Well, how should it motivate us? How do we, how do we understand what Christ has done in our own lives? Yesterday, we saw a glimpse of it. 
Yesterday here at Trinity, we witnessed the making of a covenant between David and Charlotte. I'm going to have to use your, your name Charlotte for a moment. Uh, by the way, at the rehearsal, I said I was going to use Charlotte the whole time, but most, most times yesterday I used Charlotte. So I think you preferred that, right? Yeah, okay. Um, we, we witnessed the covenant between David and Charlotte, and I spoke about uh, fathers, uh, that they were going to be leaving their fathers and mothers and, and cleaving to one another as spouses. And in that discussion, I likened the leaving and cleaving to Jesus leaving his glorious place in heaven with his father and coming to earth to cleave to his bride, the church. That's what he did. He left the glories in heaven, became a man, was cloven to his church, like glue. Remember yesterday as I defined the word cleave in the Old English, it's like being brought together and glued together. Christ came to offer Himself a ransom for His bride, that He might have a, a spotless bride. So when the day comes and it's coming, when the bride is fully brought into the kingdom and that bride is brought into the presence of Christ for the, the great wedding feast in heaven, it's a spotless bride and Jesus has purchased that already. So yesterday we saw a glimpse of that in David and Charlie following after Christ himself in a covenant of marriage with one another. David made a covenant with Charlotte, leaving his parents and cleaving to his bride to love, protect, defend her to the point of laying down his life if necessary. I don't know if you realize that's what you were doing yesterday, David, but that's what you did. That's what Christ did in the new covenant for us. He, he made a covenant with his, his bride on behalf of his bride with his father. He made the covenant with his father on behalf of the bride that he would bring her to the heavenly place atoned, covered with the forgiveness of his own blood, a spotless bride forever to dwell with the bridegroom. Well, in our passage today, we hear Jesus instructing his disciples, those who desire to follow after him, to be willing to die on a cross and to follow him. That's what he's telling them. And this is the ultimate sacrifice of any man or woman to give one's life for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. Jesus did it. And if we are going to mimic him, if we are going to follow after him in righteousness, we have to have that same kind of fortitude to be obedient unto our Heavenly Father, even if it requires our death. One of the many primary lessons the Son of God gives us is becoming a man and rightly personifying as an example for the whole world what it means to be a faithful Son of God. Now why do I bring that to our attention? Well, think about this in light of Adam. Remember, Paul calls Jesus the second Adam or the last Adam. That's how he refers to Christ in uh, Romans chapter 5, I believe it is. When Adam came or was created and sinned, he brought the whole world under the curse of sin. And the manifestation of a faithful son of God was completely obscured with Adam. He was created to be a faithful son and he failed. He sinned against God. So there was no manifestation 
of a faithful son of God. And there was no such manifestation until the faithful son of God, as we read in uh, Luke 1 today, and we'll read in Luke 2 next week, until that faithful son came to break open to us what it means to be a faithful son and to show forth by way of example what it means to follow God in righteousness. Now it is true that God raised up men in the Old Testament who came very close to rightly bearing the image of God, but in every case they fell short because they were tainted by sin. Even King David, a man after God's own heart, the Scriptures say, would sin grievously against God. He would repent and be restored, but not without consequences for those sins that he had committed. Only in Jesus can we see the true picture of a loyal, faithful, and sinless son, a son of God, as God had intended all of us to be, sons and daughters of God. Thus, only in Jesus do we have a true image to replicate with our own lives for the glory of God the Father. So we must be careful to pay attention to his examples to us. Now, our passage begins with an incident between Jesus and his disciples regarding some hard sayings about Jesus' impending death on the cross. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. This is what he's teaching his disciples. Now, he's well into his ministry when this happens. In fact, he's moving into the latter part of his ministry at this point. And he's telling his disciples there's some some things that are going to happen that are going to upset everything you've been dealing with uh, with me thus far. And of course, Peter reacts in our passage to this and rebukes our Lord. When Peter took him aside, and be, then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, "Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you." Now we know in hindsight that Peter was impetuous at times. And it is shown here most vividly in this rebuke of Jesus. He truly loves Jesus, and yet Peter is unwilling to receive this chilling news from the lips of his dear friend and his Lord. Consider what Peter has witnessed while in the presence of Jesus. He has witnessed Jesus feed two multitudes, numbering 5,000 and 4,000 persons respectively. He watched Jesus walk on the water and then was invited to join him. And Peter was given that same privilege. Jesus has healed the lame, the deaf, the blind, and the speechless. And yet Peter is so bold as to rebuke the Lord of glory, the one who governs all things. The greatest irony of this rebuke is that Matthew records immediately before this Jesus asking his disciple who he is, his disciples who he is, and Peter responds, "You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God." In verse sixteen of that same chapter, and having acknowledged Jesus' deity in that statement, Peter then, in this passage, presumes to rebuke the Son of the Living God. How soon he forgot who he was rebuking. Peter was likely focusing on. Jesus telling them of his death in the passage. But verse 21 
doesn't end with death. It ends with resurrection. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Brethren, that last phrase is not an afterthought. It is just as important as the suffering and death portions of the verse. Jesus never left his disciples without hope. Never. When he brought them hard sayings, there was always hope attached to it. There was always a promise of the glorification of the Son in the end. Here, is this, this passage is no different. Jesus is the personification of hope. And that's what he's trying to communicate to his disciples. But that personification of hope doesn't mean things all, is always good and blissful. It doesn't mean that all trials and tribulations are expunged from life. On the contrary, he's telling them, I have to die, but then the third day I will rise again. Jesus is the personification and hope. And Peter's rebuke came from a lack of faith in Jesus' power over death. And Jesus, in turn, rebukes Peter, confronting Peter close, Peter closely, saying that his thoughts are satanic and not the things of God. His faith was not in the one who could overcome, but rather in the one who brought sin and death. That's why Jesus makes such a, a vivid contrast with what's happening here. These are... These are the thoughts of sin and death, those are things that Satan brings to the world. I'm bringing hope. I am bringing life and new life. And that's where, that's where your focus should be. Now one last thought about Jesus' rebuke of Peter. Though Peter would deny his Savior three times during Jesus' suffering before the cross, Peter's legacy is that he received the rebuke of Jesus as he should have. Proverbs 9.8 states, Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Peter's impetuous actions turn to faithful obedience following the resurrection of Jesus. Peter's demeanor changed when he came face to face with the power of the resurrection and he would give his life, his life, just as his Savior did for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. Here, Jesus, or here, Peter's faith was immature. It was, it was still growing. But once the power of the resurrection was experienced by Peter, his demeanor changes. And when you read the epistles of Peter, you see that demeanor changed. Even, even when Jesus, in, after he was resurrected, when he confronted uh, Peter and the, and the other apostles, the disciples, when they had, had, uh, uh, were on the Sea of Galilee fishing and had come back, and Jesus three times says to Peter, feed my sheep. Peter is reluctant because he understands his own sin. He understands that he has failed his Savior by denying him. But he's, cut, he's now face to face with the power of the resurrection. And Jesus lifts him up out of that, out of that guilt and gives him a commission to go into all the world and 
and share the gospel with every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He was a recipient of that great commission as well. So then what is the primary lesson from our passage as followers of Jesus? Our thoughts should not be on what we can gain or preserve in this life, but rather what we can sacrifice in this life for God's kingdom. I've been remiss in not teaching sacrifice enough uh, to our congregation. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not doing it. Yesterday, there was great sacrifice made uh, by many of you on behalf of David and Charlie for the wedding. And as Tom expressed his gratitude for that, I, I have to express my gratitude as well as I saw that being done. Selflessly, people giving. Um, I heard many of you stayed very late to clean up last night as well. Uh, that is sacrifice. And that's, that redounds to the glory of God. This is what Christ did for us. And that's how we are to, to live with one another in a sacrificial way. So I, I don't want to... I've got to be careful when I talk about sacrifice. But what I do want to emphasize to us is that Christ came not just to die on the cross. He came to give us an example of what it means to live a life in obedience to God. Day by day. Moment by moment. And He did it faithfully. He was a picture of those things for us. Our thoughts should not be on what we can gain or preserve in this life, but rather what we can sacrifice in this life for God's kingdom. The Scriptures are clear. To whom much is given, much is required. When redemption comes to us by God's gracious and merciful hands and the attendant attendant blessings that accompany that redemption, we must be sacrificial in giving back to God what He has entrusted to us. You see, this isn't a one-way street. Yes, God does so much for us. In fact, He does more than we could ever possibly repay. But it's with an intended purpose. He wants His kingdom to advance. And He wants us to be an integral part of that advancement. How do we do that? We give back to Him what He's given to us. If He's entrusted to us talents, we are to use them for His glory. If He's entrusted to us means, we are to use that for His glory. If He's entrusted to us, any, whatever the gift might be, whatever the talent, we are to use that for His glory. Now earlier I said that it's the ultimate sacrifice of any man or woman to give one's life for the advancement of the kingdom of God. I truly believe this. Yet, I doubt if any of us, or very few of us, will have to taste death as a consequence of our witness to Christ's kingdom in this life. This does not mean that we cannot sacrifice for God's kingdom. On the contrary, the sacrifice of Jesus for His church did not begin at the cross. His sacrifice ended there. It didn't begin there, but it ended there. His sacrifice began more than 30 years before His death when the only begotten Son of God became a man, gladly giving up His divine glory in preparation to be the atoning sacrifice to take away the sins of the world for His bride. 30 years before, when He set aside His glory, as I remind us each Sunday at the Lord's table, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be before God, 
but made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And having been found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. To follow Jesus by taking up our cross and following him includes a life devoted to God's kingdom. Jesus' life was devoted to advancing the kingdom of God and transforming a world steeped in darkness because of sin and dispelling that darkness as the light of life. The light of life. It is incumbent for us to do as the Apostle Paul teaches us in the epistles of Romans and Philippians. And in Philippians 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul wrote, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. This harkens back to Peter and his demeanor changing after the resurrection. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. We live in a post-resurrection age, brethren. The power that brought Jesus up from the dead is the same power that resides in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. We are to be conformed to Christ in His sacrificial living that we too might be transformative agents in the world. When we are conformed to Him in His sacrifice, we transform the world to the kingdom of God. We, His emissaries, bear the light of the gospel in our lives. It is that light. Is that light hidden under a bushel? Or is it evident for the world to see? Now just yesterday I learned of an account of a young Christian man who had shared his faith with, a, with an acquaintance over a period of time. That acquaintance was, a, was, a, was living a life of drug dealing and drug abusing to the point he was spiraling downward toward death. Unbeknownst to the Christian man, the drug dealer had remembered the testimony of the Christian and began reading the scriptures and seeking God, no doubt by the goading of the Holy Spirit. Several months passed. Later, that drug dealer has now be, has come back to the Christian seeking an understanding of what it means to be a Christian and follow God in righteousness. And I would ask you to pray for this seeker who is in this season, who in this season of Advent is on the cusp of bowing his knee to the newborn king. I bring that to your attention for this purpose. That Christian didn't hide his light under a bushel. He had no idea that just planting that seed would one day bear fruit. We don't know how much fruit it'll bear, but let's hope that that drug dealer bows his knee to the king. Brethren, that's a daily activity that we should do to let our light shine for the gospel of Christ in whatever we put our hands to do. Whatever work He gives us to do. That is our opportunity to sacrifice daily. Take up your cross daily and follow Christ by sacrificing your life for His kingdom. And trust me, there is reward. Sacrifice in the kingdom of God comes with a promise of incalculable blessing as we see in our passage. These are the words of Jesus. But whoever loses his life for my sake 
will find it. Rather than the Apostle Paul, when contemplating the power of the resurrection, wrote, I die daily in 1 Corinthians 15. I can't help but think that he may have been contemplating these teachings of Jesus that we find in our passage today. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is teaching us that from death comes life. He lived that. And he's teaching us to follow in his steps. We are raised to newness of life and the power of the resurrection. Our spirits are made alive in Jesus Christ. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. This is the legacy of following Christ sacrificially. The legacy of abundant life. In this season of Advent, brethren, when we contemplate the coming Savior, ponder anew the sacrifice Jesus has made for you to give you abundant life and live as becomes followers of Christ. Let us pray together.